be changed and turned towards you. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So if you don't have a handout, you need to grab one. They're over there on the, on the sides of the table. So <clears throat> really quick, the, um, this course seminar is going to be a little bit different than the ones that we've been doing lately. Um, the <clears throat> we will still be going through scripture and studying and teaching the Bible and we'll be learning the same, le- but this, the way these are structured, we're going through a course that the entire church is going through at the same time. So, the, uh, so all the children from kindergarten all the way up through, to, through the adults will all be hearing the same message and concentrating on the same passages and verses, right? And so obviously, and they'll be adjusted according to age groups. And so our aim in doing that is to help families in their family discipleship, okay, and their family worship. So, so make it a, what it'll do is it'll make it easier for those of us with children to talk about those things that their children learned in Sunday school and be better prepared to have these conversations with them at home. So that's the aim here. So even if you don't have children, it's still, you're still going to learn, you know, we're still going to learn the scriptures, it's still going to be valuable for us. But the aim is to have, to help families and people at home do family worship. So we don't, we ordered some um, student guides and family discipleships books that go along with this course. They just haven't arrived yet. So hopefully they'll be here next week. So just be patient with us in that regard. So what our first quarter seminar is titled is, is we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible. So what we'll be going through is some of it will be apologetic, not so much. Um, Most of it will be just how, why the Bible is trustworthy. So we'll be going through that for the next 13 weeks. And um, so this week, week one is God's word is our foundation. So that'll be the first week. And then over the course of these next 13 weeks, we'll be talking about why the Bible is trustworthy, why you can believe it, how to defend what your faith from it, and different um, things like that. And the children will be learning the same thing. So the goal is for you to be learn from here today and then go home and talk to your family and your children about these same things. That makes sense to you? All right. So if you got your hand out, I need you to take a couple minutes and answer this first question on the very top of the handout. Um, it says, what are the most pressing problems in our society? What are the most pressing problems in our society today? Okay, so take a couple minutes and answer that. What is the most pressing problems? What are the most pressing problems in our society today? Answering the question, what are the most pressing problems in our society today? All right. So, hang on to those answers. We're going to come back to that. So, our theme today for this lesson is how the Word of God 
is foundational for our lives and how God's word is the standard that we should use to judge every thought, right? So our objective in this is to look at some of the qualities of God's word that make that justify it being foundation, being foundational, and then we should analyze how we use the Bible in making everyday decisions and determining what we will and will not do in our lives, right? So we're going to start with just going through some Bible passages, and then we'll talk about some of these other things. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Psalm 86, Psalm 86, verse 11, Psalm 86, verse 11. Word of God says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here in this passage, this, 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 this psalm is written by King David. The Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. And David, in this passage, he makes two requests in this verse. The first request is that God would teach him his his way. And the second request is for God to unite his heart. Okay. And both these requests have intended purposes. So he asks God, God, he asked the Lord to teach me your way so that I may walk in your truth. So that's the intended purpose of that first request. And the intended purpose of the second request is that so that he would fear the name of the Lord. So he asked God to unite his heart so that with the intended purpose that he would fear the name of the Lord. So David wants to be taught God's way with the aim of walking in God's truth, as well as having his heart united so that he would fear God. So to have a united heart simply means to have an undivided heart, to have an undivided heart. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this verse, teach me your way, Yahweh, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. Okay, that's how the Holman translates verse 11, uh, Psalm 86, verse 11. So a person with an undivided heart is one who is totally committed to God so David is asking God to give him a single-minded focus in life. Right? That's what his prayer is, to have this single-minded focus in life and not have divided attention. So to walk, and to, walk in, to walk in God's truth or to walk in God's way simply means to have a pattern of life that is in accord with God's ways and his word. All right. That's what it means to walk. So in the first request to be taught God's way, David is acknowledging his dependence on the Lord, how much he needs God in order to lead a righteous and truthful lifestyle. So not only does David request, not only does his request acknowledge his dependence on God, but it also implies a certain level of godly humility. So in this request, David acknowledges 
that his human understanding is limited and that God's ways are higher and more righteous than his own ways. Therefore, he needs to be taught these ways in order to walk in truth. He's incapable of doing this on his own according to his own ways. He needs to be taught God's ways in order to live and walk in God's truth. That's what he's, that's what's implied in this, right? So in his second request to have a heart, to have his heart united, it is a plea for inner consistency and a deep, undivided reverence for God. So in this request, David is further acknowledging uh, human tendency to have divided loyalties and to be distracted or have conflicting desires. Amen? Right? By asking God to unite his heart, David is expressing a desire to have a singular, undivided focus on God and a genuine, wholehearted reverence for the name of the Lord. That's what he's asking here for. He's asking to have a singular and undivided focus on God and a genuine, wholehearted reverence for the name of the Lord. So if I'm going too fast and you're taking notes, just ask me to repeat something and I will, okay? So can you think of any other passages in the Bible where the Christian walk is referenced? Yeah, the turn, like to walk. Psalm 1, okay. Yeah, so turn your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his, de- his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. All right, so can anybody else think of any others? Any other passages that where the Christian walk is referenced? John eight twelve, John eight twelve says this, again, Jesus spoke to the, John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? Also, John twelve thirty five. John twelve thirty five. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. All right. And also Romans 6, 4. I'm not going to I'll, I'll read them all, but I'll, I'll list them. I'll tell you if you're taking notes. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptiz- by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may, might walk in the newness of life. Right? And then 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Ephesians 4, 1, 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then there's Colossians 1.10, Colossians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, and Philippians 1.27. All of those are passages. So that's Colossians 1.10, Colossians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, and Philippians 1.27. Now, Philippians 1.27 doesn't specifically use the word walk, but that concept is there, okay? So, <clears throat> basically what it means to walk in, when the Bible uses this term walk, it's talking about basically living your life or having a, a, a pattern of life that's consistent with what God has revealed to be true, right, beautiful, and proper. Okay, so you live your life, your pattern of life follows. This is so when you see this quite often when you see this. There are times in the Bible when you read about somebody walking where they're actually walking and putting one foot in front of the other. Right. And often. But when he's talking about walking, he's talking about how you live your life, how you go about. Pursuing your life on a day to day basis and the pattern of how you should live. So this is what David is talking about. He needs God to teach him his way in order to live the way according to, according, in order to live according to God's truth, right? So, with that, how would you summarize, how would you summarize or restate David's desire in Psalm 86, verse 11? You. You should be answering this question. <laughs> How would you restate or summarize David's desire in Psalm 86, verse 11? What is David asking for? How would you put it in your own words? Yes, sir. Help me to learn your will in the scriptures so I can practically apply it. Okay. Would anybody else? He said, help me to learn. Say it again. Help me to learn your will in the scripture so that I can practically apply. Would anybody like to add anything else? So, nobody? So, if you know, Ricky, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Make me walk in your way uh, so that my heart is always seeking you. Make me walk in your way so that my heart is always seeking you. Anybody else? Teach me your truth to teach me how to love you, right? Anybody else? All right, those are all good answers. So listen, David's desire is to live his life according to God's way, right? And this should be the goal for every believer. This should be all of our goals. This is what we should all be aiming for. The truth or this truth is one that we see throughout Scripture. Godly men and women, what, what they attempt to do in the Scriptures is live according to what God has, has revealed as true and proper. So we'll be look, that's what we'll be looking at throughout the rest of this study for the next quarter and the rest of this morning. So if you, let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 105. So we'll look at how another passage of Scripture conveys this idea, right, conveys this idea. So we're just trying to, so the, the course is about, is, is we can trust the Bible 
So we're going to start with how the Bible should be foundational for us as Christians, right? So we're just proving from Scripture how godly, how the godly use the Bible as a foundation for how they live their entire lives and view the world, okay? So Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? So here the psalm is using a metaphor, and it describes God's word as a lamp. So we know that the word of God is not literally a lamp, and that the psalms are poetry that contain great truths for us to grab, hold to, and understand. So if we examine this language a bit more carefully, we can understand the idea that the psalmist is trying to convey when he says that the word is a lamp. So if you I'm going to read from Psalm from 119.105 all the way through verse 12. Verse 112, verse 112. Here's what the word of God says. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offering of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. So these verses that we just read, 105 to 112, they are filled with phrases like righteous rules, your word, your rules your precepts, your statutes. And so I want to ask you, what are all of these phrases referring to? What are all of these phrases referring to? Righteous rules, your word, your precepts, your statutes. What are they referring to? John, help me out. What are they referring to? The Bible. They refer to God's revealed truth recorded in Holy Scripture, right? So this metaphor is referring to God's revealed truth as a lamp that lights our past, right? So how does this idea relate to the passage we just looked at in Psalm 8611? So we looked at Psalm 8611, and it said, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to feel your name. So how does Psalm 108? 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How do those two passages relate to one another? Okay, that is your way. Then we need that that she said that that this teach me your way. The word is what needs to be learned and taught so that you can live according to that way, right? So both convey the idea of walking in or living in light of God's word or God's revealed truth in scripture, right? So when we walk in dark places, lamps help to illuminate the path in front of us so that we don't go off the path or fall into some kind of danger. So in a similar way, as we go about living our daily lives, God's word should guide our decisions just as a lamp would guide our steps in the darkness. Right? This is how he's 
illustrating this for us here in this in this passage. So another helpful way to think about it is like looking at the world through a pair of glasses or contact lenses. Right. Anyone who wears glasses or contact lenses can attest to the fact that the world looks completely different when you don't wear them. Amen. Right. So the world looks completely different when you don't have your contacts or your glasses on and you might see a sign without them on but you can't read the proper directions, right? So the word of God functions similarly in, the, in our lives. When we look at the world through the lens of scripture, we see things differently than the world does. So because we trust that God is good and he is for his people, we trust that what he has revealed about the world is true and good, and therefore we see the world differently than those who don't fear him and don't believe that he is good. Does that make sense to you? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Right, so we'll. That's right, the revealed truth of the Word of God. So, <clears throat> so at the beginning of the class, I asked you to think about the biggest problems in our society, right? So I asked you to write them down, take a couple minutes and write them down. So, what are some of the problems that you wrote down or thought of? If you don't volunteer, <laughs> I'm going to start calling on people. What are some of the problems you wrote down? Did you write down anything? What did you write down, brother? Uh, first and foremost, removal of the true God in his word. Okay, removal of the true God in his word. I just put lack of belief and knowledge in the Lord. Lack of belief and knowledge in the Lord. What did you write? Oh, uh, corrupting uh, marriage. Corrupting marriage. Sin in general and then seared consciousness. Seared in general. Um, sin in general, seared consciousness. Lack and direction of purpose of how you should live. I wrote injustice, corruption, lack of equality, worship, uh, lack of care for family, racism, and uh, Okay, so the question was the problems in society, right? Now, all of those problems, right, are going to be viewed very differently from a Christian to a non-Christian, Right? So give me, what, what was one of the ones you said, John? You said abortion, what else? Racism, injustice, corruption. So if you take, for example, this idea of abortion or corruption, let's use corruption. We'll talk about corruption, right? How does the world view these issues differently from how the Bible teaches about corruption? So, yeah, right. That is true. The world talks about Trump, but specifically, when we, let's, okay, well, let's, let's talk about abortion. Hold on a second, John. We're going to get to this. Let's talk about abortion, because I think this one will probably be easier for everybody to get their head around, and then we'll, we'll walk it out to the, the harder ones, okay? So, when we talk about abortion, how does the world view the issue of abortion? What is the main issue for a non-believer? For the 
Yes. Bodily autonomy. And it's a matter of choice. That's how unbelievers view the topic of abortion. This is about choice and bodily autonomy. But what does the Bible say about this subject? That all people, no matter how small and regardless of location, are made in the image of God. Right? So right off the bat, what happens is we're having two different conversations. Right? Because this person is talking about my right to choose, and we're talking about murder. Right? So we're not even, we're not even on the same playing field. Right? We're on two different fields of play, talking about two completely different things. Right? So when you start talking, most of the time you're doing this, right? And so somebody's going to be on somebody's playing field, right? And, who's there, and whichever playing field that you decide to get on, you, you, the argument's going to change completely. Amen? So we view because, of the, because we have the Bible as our presupposition, we have the word of God as our presupposition, the entire conversation changes. Does that make sense to you? So let's talk about this. What was the other one? Corruption, right? How does the world view corruption? The world view corruption. A matter of the economic system. Okay. Um, Yeah, favoritism, that's a good one, right? So some people, corruption is defined by if, so if my party's in in charge and they help me out, it's not corruption. But if they help out my opposing the party that I oppose, then it's 100% corruption, right? Or some people would say, that the, it's, they, they look at these things very pragmatically, right? It's not a matter of if it's right or wrong. It's a matter of what got accomplished. Does that make sense to you? So it's corrupt if the outcome was bad, but it's not corrupt if the outcome was good, right? That's how the world would view those issues. But how does the Bible view this issue of corruption? It's sin, right? Uh, yes, of course, it's sin, but more specifically, how? As, as w- are the leaders in our nation, who do they ultimately answer to? Okay, in real life, who do they ultimately answer to? The Lord. They're going to give an account to the Lord for how they managed everything. The Bible says that, that the uh, authorities are deacons of God, and they're going to give an account to God. So corruption, right, is a matter of the heart's disposition towards God and the people that they have to give care for. Yes, sir.
Sure. Okay. So let's not, yes, we're not going to lose the forest for the trees here. Okay. Listen, but we're just generally speaking, corru- the way the world view corruption, they, because they don't have a Bible, they don't have the word of God as their foundation. They have a completely different starting point and they're, compl- they're talking about these issues in completely different ways than we are. You had your hand up. Okay. Now listen. She said that when she was younger, last spring, <laughs> that um, people wouldn't even talk about abortion. It was a scandal to even bring it up and mention it publicly. And it's just not different. People are, are less and less or more and more inclined, I mean, to hate God and reject the Lord. So listen, so there's no dispute in all these issues that we could have talked about a hundred issues, right? That there are problems in our society and other societies, but these problems are symptoms of a much greater problem. And all these problems that you gave, that you wrote down, societal problems that you wrote down are fruit of a deeper issue, right? The real problem is that the world has rejected God and therefore do not take God's view of these issues into account, right? That's the the deeper problem. So if God's ordinances and precepts and God's word were valued at all, these issues would evaporate. If people feared God, their hearts would be united to his and his word would guide their steps. And then you wouldn't have men abandoning their families You wouldn't have women having abortions. You wouldn't have women fighting for the right to have abortions. Or you wouldn't have women feeling like they needed to have abortions because they would have family support and family structure there. All of these things would evaporate, right? This whole concept of racism would would evaporate because if we understood and read our Bibles, we would know that every man is a descendant of Adam and Eve, right? Some of us are just blessed with more melanin than others. That's it, right? But we're all from, we all come from the same two people. Amen? All people are made in the image of God. So a lot of these things would evaporate if people read and believed the Bible. So when we put on biblical lenses, as it were, the right choices in all these circumstances would come into focus. So rather than these problems being the real problem, all social ills are symptoms of a wholesale rejection of God. When the world rejects God, you get all of these problems, right? So both God and his word have been set aside by most people in this world. And so for this reason, most of us, most people do not use God's word to guide their steps, but they rather they look inside of themselves and they look to their feelings to judge whatever is right in their own eyes. And then you get all of these problems in society, right? So I don't want to make it sound like I'm 
downplaying these problems in society, and I'm not saying that these problems are not real and difficult, but ultimately they're just fruit of a root problem of the rejection of God and the word of God, right? So, and this problem is not limited to unbelievers, right? Many self-professed Christians struggle with this as well. Many people who, who call themselves Christians do not have the Bible as their foundation, do not look at the world through the lens of Scripture. Many of us struggle with this idea that, um, so let me say it like this. If you spend enough time around a church, you will soon find out that many, many contemporary Christians do not believe that some of their desires or emotions can be ungodly. Right. They don't believe that some of their emotions and some of their feelings are just flat out wrong. Right. And they need to be suppressed and crushed. Some Christians don't believe that. There are self-professed Christians who believe they will say to you, are you telling me that what I'm feeling is wrong? Yes, it can be. Some of the things that you feel can be ungodly and wrong, and they need to be suppressed and crushed and brought into subjection to the word of God. Absolutely. Right? Um, many contemporary believers um, reject what God's word clearly implies. Right? So listen to this. Young men, I want you to, all the unmarried single men in here, I want you to listen to this. First Peter chapter three, verse three through four says this. It vividly describes what a beautiful woman is. Okay. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in which in God's sight is very precious. So. Here's what the world has been pumping into your head. That beauty is subjective. Right? Is that what God says here? That beauty is subjective? No. So, now, if we're talking about purely physical beauty, so if you find a, a, a woman, men, who is externally beautiful, but she lacks this quality, Right? What that means then is that your affections are broken, right? And you have a poor definition of beauty that's not defined by the word of God. That makes sense to you? So here's what I mean. The world told you that beauty is subjective, right? So that you could look at a woman and go, I think she's beautiful. And the next man can look at her and go, I don't. But the word of God is pretty clear here. If she has a gentle and quiet spirit, that's a beautiful woman. And you should think so. Amen? Amen. The reason that you don't is because you begin pumped in. So what's been getting pumped into your head is that beauty is subjective. So if you read through the Proverbs, young man, there's a particular type of woman that the Bible says you're not supposed to even look at. You should see her and run that way 
and she should be unattractive to you. Right? So, but here's what's going on in your brain right now. You're thinking purely external beauty. Right? But that's not a whole person. Is it? Is that a whole person? Is a person just what they, what they are on the outside? No. A whole person is what they are, body, mind, soul, and spirit. Right? And so to disregard what a person is in, on the inside and to categorize them as beautiful purely based on their external beauty means that you have a definition of beauty that is not founded on the word of God. Your worldview and how you define things has been more informed by the world than it has been by the word of God. Amen? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Gentle and quiet. And <laughs> Let me, can I answer that question later? Because I just don't want to, I'm not avoiding it, but gotcha. I'm just trying not to lose. Because you're, was, yes, yeah, it's not necessarily so much about, yes. <laughs> the point is, the point that I'm trying to make is, is like, is the Bible okay. what's defining how you view the world? Okay. okay? Is the Bible defining for you what is beauty so the bible so the world has taught us beauty is subjective but the bible has very made very clear statements about what is beautiful and what's not men right so i'm picking on the men right now okay here's another one this one another one of my personal favorites titus 2 4 clearly says that older christian women are to train young women to love their husbands and their children so what, which clearly implies that they don't know how to, right? Now, but what is the world telling you? That women just inherently know how to love their husbands and children better than men do, right? Is that how the world says? That this is just something that you're innately born with, that you're just going to have a baby and boom, all of this love for a child is just going to be there? That's not what the scriptures is teaching, Right? is clearly implying that young women need to be trained in this area by women who have learned how to do it. Amen? So men, if you marry a woman and you fail to put her into a situation where she can live a life around and be disciplined by godly, older, mature women, she will never learn how to love her children well. Or if she does, she's just going to stumble into it after many, many, many failures. Right? Now, that's not, I'm not saying that they don't have internal affection for them. I'm saying they're not going to love them the way the Bible commands. Now, understand the difference between the two. Okay? There's a sti- the distinction between the two. I'm not saying that she's not going to feel affection for her spouse or her children. I'm not saying that at all. There are people who don't um, know the Lord at all, and they love their children, right? I'm talking about they're not going to love them the way the Bible commands them to do. That makes sense to you? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Right, so the, so the Lord... 
Mm-hmm. You got to teach them to avoid trouble. Teach them to avoid. Right? Yeah. A broken clock is right twice a day. So look, the Lord said. Oh, man, I forgot the Bible verse. I'm having an old man moment. He says, how is it that you being evil, right? You give good gifts to your children. So there's a sense in which even unbelievers love their children, right? Even unbelievers love their children. But what I'm being specific about is that they're not going to be able to love their husbands and their children the way that the Bible commanded them to. That's their obligation and their duty. So you as a husband, your, your obligation and, a duty, and your duty is to put her in situations where she can learn how to obey the Lord. Amen? So don't, don't, misunder, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? So, again, like I say, most men believe that beauty is subjective and that young women naturally love their husbands and their children and therefore don't need to be trained in it. All that to say that the problem is not limited, not having the Bible as your foundation, that problem is not limited to those who reject Christ. It's also in the church as well. So again, all these issues that we brought up are real issues, but the root of the problem is that men would rather worship the creation rather than the creator, and as a result, they reject his word. They don't have his word as their foundation. And not only is it not just that I'm trying to... Um, obey the word of God, right? But I view the entire world based on what the word of God has revealed, right? I view the entire world based on how God has revealed it, right? So let me ask you, is it more important, is it more important for people in our country to get back to traditional family values or to depend on the Lord and see him as absolutely sovereign. Which one is more important? It's, a, it's not a trick question, right? <laughs> right? Which one is more important? A court to worship God. But if you listen to most of our politicians, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, what will they tell you? We need to get back to family values. We need to get, we need to get back to family values, family values, family values. Okay, well, you can train and teach your children all these family values and they and you and all of them will be on their way to hell if you don't trust the Lord. So what she said was is that people say that to be politically correct, right? And what, they're, and what they are actually saying is, is that they need to go, we need to get back to God's values, but they won't say that phrase, get back to God's values, so they just, so they don't get ostracized and, you know, alienate particular voters, okay? So listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verses 4 through 6 says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take captive 
and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, dis- when your obedience is complete. So family, all the problems that we see in this world and we rightly see them as evil and in need of corrections are but symptoms. So as we proclaim the great gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and people are saved and their hearts and their minds are changed and transformed by the power of God's uh, Holy Spirit, right? Individual lives will change. Society will be impacted. And as we preach and teach the gospel and make disciples and teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded, society will change, right? There's no doubt about that. But it's going to change at God's pace and at his timing, not ours. So all that we do here every day, if we want to change the world, I would suggest you start with changing your family and helping them to obey the Lord. Have a lot of babies, if you can. Train them and teach them the fear and admonition of the Lord. Teach them to love their neighbors well and your unbelieving family well. Teach them to work hard as if, as if unto the Lord. And when they work, make sure that they are an asset to all the people around them so the people around them can flourish. You should be teaching your children and you should be working in such a way that your presence or your absence there is felt should you leave, right? And, and when your children have children, tell them to do the same thing to their children, right? So I just want to encourage you here because the Lord had 12 disciples, right? It's like a billion, how many billions of Christians are, or self-professed Christians are in the world today? He went from 12 people to an untold number of people, okay? And we know, at, according to Revelation, that the Lord wins, right? So a lot of the things that you do and a lot of the things that, you are, that we're doing seem slow going, seems like you're not making an impact, but the fruit of these things may not necessarily come to fruition in your lifetime, but you are called to be faithful to his word and trust God for the rest, trust God for the, for the rest of it. You may not see the impact of it. Amen? But this world is going to change. This world is being renewed. So I just want to encourage you in that, right? We can, so who can summarize the key principle that we can draw from Psalm 119.105? Psalm 119.105. You remember what it says? Kind of got on a little rabbit trail there, but Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So who can summarize the key principle from that passage, from that verse, and how can you apply it to your life? Psalm 119.105. Somebody talk to me. Okay. 
Right. Okay, so we must see, she said that the word of God is what we must be looking at the world through. Or, yes, right? That's what you said? Okay. So we must see uh, God's word as the absolute authority in every area of our lives. So seeing the world through biblical lenses and taking every step and making every decision and every choice in light of God's word. So I want you to turn your Bibles. We got a couple minutes left. Turn your Bibles to uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 19, verse 7, Psalm 19, verse 7. I want you to take like a couple minutes. I want you to do something for me, right? I want you to read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 on your handout. If you look at your handout, can I see your handout? On your handout on page two. Yeah, on the back of page two where it says, what is God's word? I want you to read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. And I want you to identify the various roles that God's word has in our life. So if you look at that, it's a table there. I did the first one for you in verse 7. It says it identifies God's word as the law. Then it describes it as perfect. And then the role that it has is that it converts the soul. So in verse seven, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. OK, that's the first half of verse seven. OK. And so then you may have more than one, you know, in, in each verse, but take a couple minutes. So write the verse number down, identify how the, you know, the identity of the, the word of God, the description, and then the role. I'm going to give you like three or four minutes. Okay, <clears throat> so it's fine if you don't finish it all today because you got homework, all right? So tell me, somebody talk to me. Who would like to read their list of different identities that they found in this passage? Eliza, why don't you tell me what you got for identities? Okay. What about um, description? What version of the Bible are you using? ESV? Okay. 
Oh, I did put it on there for you, didn't I, huh? Okay. Does any, is somebody else using a different version of the Bible? I didn't realize I put it on there. I'm sorry. So what she said was, so in verse 7, the law, well, that's the one I filled out for you, but the second part of that is that, so in verse 7 is testimony. So the, the, the word of God is described as testimony of the Lord, and the description is sure, okay? And then what it does is it makes the why, it makes, make, makes the simple wise, makes the simple wise, right? So if you consider yourself to be a simple person, right, you should, the, the role that the word of the Lord has in your life is to make you wise, right? Okay, somebody give me another, so number eight, or verse eight, precepts. She said the precepts was the identity, the description is, is that it was right, and, and, it, what it, and the role that it has is that it rejoices the heart, okay? Same thing, commandment is for, also in verse 8, commandments, his commandment is pure, and what it does, it enlightens the eyes. So all of those are different roles. The reason why I wanted you to go through that is because your children will probably be coming home and asking you about this today. So you need to be able to know how to do this with them sometime throughout the week, right? So I would encourage you to go and complete the rest of this and bring it back next week, okay? It's going to be a test. I'm joking. But just finish it and go through it all. We'll talk about it some more next week, okay? Because we want to give you this skill to be able to do this on your own, okay? So you can rightly divide the word of truth and be able to understand the Bible, all right? So we looked at some truths from the scripture. So these are some, some of these things, the usefulness of God's word. So if we think about how we can apply these things specifically to certain areas in of our life, um, when, you, when you take the word of God and apply it across your entire life, the fancy definition for that is just worldview, the word worldview, right? So everybody has a worldview. Everybody views the world based on a particular set of presuppositions, right? As believers, our worldview should be, Worldview should be firmly and unapologetically founded on the truth of God's word as revealed in the scriptures, right? So every interaction that you have with anyone, that person has a worldview. Does that make sense to you? Every interaction that you have with somebody else, that person has a worldview. And since I'm running out of time, I'm just going to say this last point so I can end Right. So many people reject the Bible as the foundation for their life and they reject this concept of having a biblical worldview for various different reasons. Some people it's for personal autonomy. Some people say that the Bible is outdated, that it's full of myths, that it's been mistranslated, that it's untrustworthy. But ultimately, the reason why people reject the word of God as their ultimate authority and reject biblical worldview is because they do not believe that God is good. Okay? They do not believe that God is good. So they reject the idea that the same God who in love sent his only begotten to suffer and die for his people also revealed his word and law to us. And that word in law is an expression 
of his goodness. And his laws, his commandments, his warnings, his restrictions, they are from the same hand that sent the Savior. They're from the same God. And many Christians have an erroneous view of the Father as a God who begrudgingly loves his church and loves his people. And he only loves them because Jesus sacrificed himself. And consequently, he is viewed as this rigid lawgiver instead of a generous, loving initiator of salvation who also lovingly gave us both his son and his word for our good and our benefit. And so consequently, you reject the word of God as an authority because you don't believe the God that gave it to you is good. And therefore, that law, that word, and those commandments are for your good. Amen? That's why ultimately most people reject the word of God as a foundation. But we cannot do that, brothers and sisters, because we know and believe that he is good. And the evidence of that is that he sent his son to die for us, to be a propitiation for our sin. So we know that he is good. And if he would not spare his own son, he would not spare anything else. Amen? So the same God that sent his Savior is the same God that gave us his word, the same God that gave you those restrictions, and the same God that gave you those commandments. And it was good, and it was for your good and his glory. Amen? Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us. Father, we need your help to believe these things, God. Lord, we have been deceived, and we doubt that the things that you say for, to us are good. So, Lord, help us, God, by the aid of your spirit to do these things, to believe them, and to obey you, O Lord. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.